Our Bible verses for this morning are Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Good morning, everybody. My name is Steve. I'm the associate pastor here at Regeneration, and I just want to update you on two things before we jump into our conversation about this text that Scott just read. The first is this. We've developed, thanks to Helen Burks, a conversation about a conversation, so a follow-up to our faith and justice conversation that we've been having once a month on Wednesday nights. There's a group of people who are getting together this afternoon to continue that in a smaller group setting. And I believe in the information that we sent out, we had said that was gonna be happening in the fireside room, but that group will actually meet in the chapel from 12.30 to 1.45. So if you're interested in joining that, just make sure you head over to the chapel and you'll find that group. And the second thing I wanted to say is just another plug for Trunk or Treat. Again, it's great that we support missions. In fact, it's one of the things that Amy and I love most about this church is how much we give away to good things that are happening here in Oakland and around the world. But the danger sometimes with being a church that supports missions is that we outsource the mission. And my encouragement to you guys is to take this opportunity that we have this weekend to really live out the mission that God has called us on, to share the good news of Jesus with our neighbors and our friends. And so I would encourage you to participate in some way and maybe most importantly to think of someone who you could invite to come along and participate in that on Saturday night, this coming Halloween. So I just encourage you to do that. I want to take a moment and pray about that particular event, and then we'll go ahead and start our conversation on Luke. So pray with me. Father, thanks as always for the opportunity to be here and to be together, to worship, to hear from your word, to take communion, and to enjoy relationship with each other and with you. And Father, we pray especially for Trunk or Treat coming up on Saturday, that you would use that to be a blessing, not just to our own community, but to the neighborhood around us, to kids in this neighborhood, to our friends that we invite. And may that event be a light on what is typically a fairly dark holiday. And so we lift that up to you. I know there's still some details that are being worked out. God, we just ask that you would work through those details and again, make that something that brings a lot of glory to you and to your name. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Albert is right here, but he'll be back in the pulpit next Sunday, finishing our Second Peter series. But today we're going to turn our attention once again to the Gospel of Luke. And we've spent a couple of weeks looking at this throughout the fall. And we're looking in particular at what is oftentimes called the travel narratives, this section in the middle of Luke's Gospel where Jesus tells some parables, some stories that are unique to the Gospel of Luke, parables that only appear here. 
They're also unique, we've seen, because of the language that Jesus uses. He uses this very ordinary, everyday language as he's on the road traveling from Galilee through Samaria towards Jerusalem, where he, of course, will give up his life on the cross. We've also seen that Samaria is hostile territory. There is not a lot of openness there to the message of Jesus. You can read a little bit about that in Luke 9, 51 through 53, where Jesus enters Samaria and you see that he's not welcomed with open arms when he enters into this territory. Now, in this hostile territory, we've seen Jesus doesn't get on a soapbox. He doesn't pull out the bullhorn. He doesn't vie for more airtime. What he does is he actually gets quieter in many ways, and he has conversations with folks, and he tells stories. Storytelling is incredibly important to our world and to how we understand and interact with our world. Rachel Gillett wrote an article for Fast Company about the power of storytelling and marketing. She says this, our brains are insanely greedy for stories. Our brains are insanely greedy for stories. And as you read through the article, she also says this. This kind of, I think, highlights what she's talking about. She says that there are numerous studies over the years that have proven that our brains are far more engaged by storytelling than by cold, hard facts. When reading straight data, only the language part of our brains work to decode the meaning. So when you're looking at charts and graphs, there's only one part of your brain that goes off. But when we read a story, not only do the language parts of our brains light up, but any other part of the brain that we would use if we were actually experiencing that thing becomes activated as well. That's fascinating to me. Storytelling is powerful. Jesus understood the power of stories. And as Rachel Gillett outlines in this article, so do marketers and people in the advertising world. And there's a lot of different stories that I think are being told through advertising. But if you peel back all the layers, I would argue that there's essentially one story that's being fed to us by marketing and advertising. I think it goes like this. We live in a scary world where the future is unknown and there's not enough to go around. So protect yourself, get all that you can, well you can, buy your way to happiness. That is essentially the story that is being communicated to us through advertising and marketing. There's a lot of companies that have done this well. I think Allstate has done the best job of telling this story. They've been running this series of commercials for years now. I'm sure you're familiar with this, okay? They've been running these commercials where mayhem is this character embodied, incarnated, if you will, by actor Dean Winters. Okay, and Mayhem shows up in all kinds of different ways. Sometimes as a faulty GPS, sometimes as a natural disaster, sometimes as some sort of unforeseen circumstance, but always wreaking havoc. And what's the tagline? Mayhem is everywhere. <laughs> Mayhem is everywhere, so please buy some Allstate insurance. And the end of that goes like this, right? Protect yourself from mayhem like me. Mayhem is everywhere. That is the story. Something bad might happen to you, so buy this thing, get this stuff, whatever that might be, and assure yourself of peace of mind. Now, in the first half of Luke chapter 12, it's about 30 verses. Jesus uses the words fear or anxiety 11 times. 
this fear-driven scarcity story is not just a product of modern advertising and marketing. It's been around for a long time. It's very much present in Jesus' time. Now, at the beginning of Luke chapter 12, Jesus is still in the phase of his ministry where he's attracting large crowds. Now, remember, he's in Samaria, this hostile territory. So these are large crowds, but they're not exactly adoring crowds. But they still want to see what is the big deal about this guy. So there's all these people around him. And out of this crowd begins our text for the day. So verse 13, out of the crowd, someone speaks to Jesus and says this. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, earlier in this series, and in fact one chapter before in Luke's gospel, we looked at a teaching that Jesus does on prayer. His disciples came to him and asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus tells a story, one of these stories that's unique to Luke's gospel in response to that. And one of the main things we saw in that scene is that Jesus says, when you pray, you should ask and seek and knock and be honest about your requests. Make them known to God because God is like a loving father who wants to give us good gifts. And so in a lot of ways, what this guy is doing here is actually an example of what Jesus has just told people to do. He addresses Jesus respectfully as teacher makes his request known. He doesn't add a bunch of flowery language, much of spiritual language. He just asks, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And then, of course, he asks the right guy, right? <laughs> Any rabbi would have expected to deal with these sorts of questions, these kinds of legal matters or family disputes. But, of course, this guy has chosen to ask Jesus who is not just any rabbi, this is the son of God. So when it comes to picking a rabbi, this guy chose well, right? He picked the right guy. But how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond? Verse 14, he says, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And I think that's actually the best way to read that verse. Man, come on, man, like, you're bringing this to me? I think sometimes we try to protect Jesus too much from human emotions. You really need, I think, to sense the exasperation here in Jesus' tone. We'll say more about that in just a moment. But back to the guy that asked this question, that brings this request to Jesus. This man and his brother are in a dispute about their inheritance, which means they're in a dispute about land. Pretty much read the word land there when you read inheritance. For these folks, land, this was no small Thing. This wasn't a matter of, you know, a few dollars here or there. This was central to their identity for both Jews and Samaritans. We don't know which group this particular fellow belongs to, but either way, their identity was tied to this land that had been promised to Abraham so many years ago. And in many ways, it still is. In fact, Albert has told me a story a couple times about one of his trips to Israel and they were hosted by a Palestinian family living in Israeli territory on a piece of land that was, is connected to some historical sites. And they've been on this land for generations, hundreds of years, and they've been offered crazy amounts of money for this land. Millions and millions and millions of dollars, and they turn it down every single time. It's too important to give up. So this guy is not getting what is deservedly his. His rights are being violated. 
For him, this is a justice issue. So in many ways, it's not wrong for him to ask this question. So why is Jesus frustrated? Why is Jesus exasperated with this guy? Big clue comes in verse 15. He said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And I think Jesus is frustrated here, not with the request, not with the question, but with the heart behind the question. I think Jesus is exasperated with this guy because this guy covered his covetousness with this passion for justice. Christians, in particular, I think are incredibly susceptible to this kind of thing. We lie because we value looking good more than the truth. We work crazy hours because we don't trust God enough to rest. We are really good at covering our sins with virtues. And I think that this is what this guy is doing here in this scene. So Jesus is going to expose this. He's going to confront this. But in order to do that, he doesn't call him out. He doesn't lecture him. He doesn't tell him off. Jesus tells another story. And the question that hangs over this story is, will this man see himself as the barn builder? So verse 16, here's the parable that Jesus tells. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, Saul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, there's nothing wrong with having productive land. Building a bigger barn isn't necessarily a sin. Barn building is what farmers do. So again, the sin is not so much in the behavior as it is in the heart condition behind the behavior. Notice all the personal pronouns in this story. What shall I do? I have nowhere to store this food. I will build bigger barns. It's so easy to justify building bigger barns. Did you guys know that Google has been keeping track of the contents of books and magazine articles and all these kinds of things for years, scanning them and putting them in whatever the Google database is. And you can now search any word and see how it's decreased and increased in usage over the years. And what they found as they've been compiling all this is that there's been a sharp rise in individualistic words and phrases like self and personalized, and I thought this was interesting, I can do it myself. <laughs> showing up more and more often in our writing. They've also seen a sharp decline in community-oriented words like community, share, united, and common good. It would be incredibly difficult to see beyond ourselves. So easy to justify building bigger barns. Here's a moment of confession. My wife and I watch the show House Hunters fairly regularly. <laughs> Way more than we probably should. Here's how this show works. I find this show actually to be kind of a fascinating study in human behavior. So a person or a couple will look at three different houses on this show 
And then at the end of the show, they pick the one that they like and they put down an offer. And almost always they end up getting the house that they pick. But at the beginning of the show, there's this moment where they sort of list out the things that they're looking for. And they'll say, oh, we're looking for a three-bedroom, two-bath house for this is our budget and we want stainless steel appliances and a yard and a two-car garage and blah, 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 this whole list of things. Here's what happens almost every single time. They look at three things. Two of them are under budget but lacking in something. Okay, it doesn't have the yard. It has white appliances. Something's not quite right about it. And then there's a third one that has all the things that they want and it's like 20 grand over their budget. And I haven't done like a scientific study on this or anything, but I swear to you, eight out of 10 times, at least they go over budget. Almost every single time. And they always justify it in some way, right? It's always like, oh, we just fell in love with this house or we could see us raising kids here or we're only gonna do this once so we decided to splurge and get all the things that we wanted. It's a scarcity story. And again, it's wrapped up in this inability to see beyond ourselves. It's so easy to justify building bigger barns. I find it interesting even how the man in the story justifies this to himself. He says, soul. He talks to his soul. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Again, it's so interesting to me that he talks to his soul because this is what we have to do, right? This conversation with ourselves deep down, convincing ourselves, bigger barns, whatever that might be, whatever that looks like, is our right. We deserve this. I earned this. I worked hard. I'm going to take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry. The phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, occurs in two other places in Scripture. Ecclesiastes 8.15 and 1 Corinthians 15.32. These are very different passages of Scripture, by the way. <laughs> but in both cases, the authors are saying essentially the same thing. They're saying that if this is all there is to the world, what we can see and touch and taste and feel, and if there's nothing beyond it, then what else is there to do but eat, drink, and be merry? In that passage from 1 Corinthians in particular, Paul is talking about the resurrection. And he's saying, if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, if there is no resurrection of the dead, there's really nothing left. We are most pitied among men, he says. So eat, drink, and be merry. This is what I would call practical nihilism. And it's where a lot of people are in our world, even Christians, this is a story that a lot of us live by. This is all there is. The future is uncertain. The future is scary. So I'll just do whatever feels good. And I'll justify it in my soul as my right. But there is a different story. Verse 20, God said to the barn builder, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose Will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus invites us into a story, a reality where there is a God. A living, breathing, active God who is at the center of the action. And when we realize that, the reality of the God who is living and active in our world changes everything 
about how we interact with the world. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, we see the story of this God rescuing his chosen people out of slavery in Egypt. And there's this period of time where God and this people get reacquainted with one another out in the desert, which leads them to a DTR conversation. Anybody know what a DTR is? DTR stands for define the relationship. Okay, this is the kind of conversation that a guy and a gal have or should have if they've been hanging out for a while, growing in friendship, and they want to know, what is this thing that we're doing? What do we call this? Is there a label that we need to put on this? This is the what are we conversation. God has a DTR with his people, and central to that conversation are ten rules, what we now know as the Ten Commandments. So how does God define the relationship? First commandment is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, this is an exclusive relationship. It's not an open relationship. And then the last commandment is this. You shall not covet. And there's a kind of a list of things there. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's property, his donkey, his motorcycle, whatever that looks like for you. (laughs) God is at the center of this relationship. And as such, he sustains us, he provides for us. And part of what is being communicated in this don't covet is you don't need to go looking somewhere else for what only God can provide. And what's interesting is that these are the bookend commandments, the first and the last commandments. And if you keep the first and the last commandment, everything in between kind of falls into place. They fall into place because your heart will be properly ordered, oriented around the God who is at the center of the action. Now, back to the barn builder. What's interesting about this guy is that he was already rich. His needs were already taken care of before his land starts producing this abundance. So he's already rich, and then he gets blessed with more, which is an opportunity for him to invest in something more meaningful and lasting than just building a bigger barn, and he misses this opportunity. He misses it. I think this is why God says, you fool. You fool, you've missed an opportunity. Your heart is in the wrong place. Eugene Peterson, reflecting on this passage, says, the parable of the barn builder is an expose on greed, using what we have to get more instead of giving away more. Using our position or goods as a means for getting impersonal power rather than giving away love. The story of God is the story of sacrificial life-giving love. It's a story of the God who risked everything to save us from our slavery to sin. The story that God invites us into is not about our rights and what we earn and what we deserve. It is about receiving God's love for us and then in turn giving that love away. When I was in college, we used to get burritos at this place called Viva Burrito. It was an awesome, divey college kind of place to go. And this one time I went there with my campus minister. His name was Jerry. And Jerry bought me a burrito, which for a college student was like gold. And so then a couple weeks later, we went back again, and Jerry was with me again. And so I offered to buy him a burrito since he had paid for mine last time. And he said no. And I thought... Well, that's kind of rude. (laughs) 
And I tried to explain to him, no, 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 you don't understand. This is how it works. Like, you bought me one, so I'm going to buy you one. It's kind of this, like, you've got my back, now I'll have yours. And he's like, no, 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 that's actually not how it works. And I was like, no, explain that to me. And he said, when I did that for you, I was not expecting you to buy me one in return. I was hoping you would buy someone else a burrito. And it's kind of a silly example. But this is how richness towards God is supposed to work. This is how God's kingdom is supposed to work. It's not a circle of reciprocity as much as it is this growing and expanding relational network of generosity, which again is a very, very different story from the one that we are told every day. God's story is a story of an abundant kingdom, an economy that never tanks. Jesus goes on to say a little bit more about this. Verse 22 of Luke chapter 12 He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And then skip down to verse 30. All the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. But instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Seek his kingdom. Invest in his economy. Live in this story and you will find that you have everything that you need. And T. Wright says it this way, the kingdom of God is at its heart about God's sovereignty sweeping the world with love and power so that human beings, each made in God's image and each one loved dearly, may relax. Not in the size of your barn, but in the knowledge that God is in control. See, we actually live in an abundant world, overflowing with abundant grace. God does not barely save us. 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. I actually like the NIV translation better because it says, see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us lavished on us God lavishes us maybe not with the house or the car or the job or whatever of our dreams but with everything that we need and so when our hearts are rightly and properly oriented around this God in right relationship with the Father who lavishes us with love then we are free to love others and to be generous and to relax Because God is in control. This parable always makes me think about the house that I grew up in. When I was about four years old, my parents, who were still very new Christians at that time, in their very first ministry job, were going through this time of discernment. And that ended with our family moving to Salinas to help plant a church. And they were working in college ministry before that. And one of their volunteers said, hey, when you get to Salinas, do not buy a house because I want to build you a house. And my parents thought, well, that's kind of a cool thing to say, but didn't really think much of it. In fact, I can remember some of my earliest memories were of visiting houses in Salinas. But through a variety of circumstances, and to make a longer story short, they did find a piece of land, and so they called Jim. That was his name. They called Jim, and they told him, and he said, great, I already have blueprints. So Jim came down, laid the foundation, And when the house was ready to be framed, he got 70 college guys on a bus and drove them down from San Jose, and they framed and roofed the house in one day. 
Everybody in the crew wore bright yellow shirts that said, ironically enough, butchery barn raising. <laughs> Our family was blessed with this incredible home on an acre of land, a home that my parents would never have ever been able to afford on a church planner's salary. And my parents call it the house that friends built. In Luke 12, Jesus says, towards the end of this section, Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus says, invest in treasure that will never fail. The story of my parents' house is a cool story in and of itself, but what is even more impressive to me is the endless multiplication of abundance that's come through that home. Because for the last 30 years, literally thousands of people have been hosted in this house. New members' desserts for people joining or interested in joining the church, small group Bible studies, parenting and marriage classes, youth group events, staff retreats, countless dinners with missionaries and church guests. I could go on and on. The point is this, the house was never just a house, right? It was always a resource for the kingdom. Friends, God has lavished us with his grace. He promises to take care of us, even our mundane requests and needs. And this frees us to relax in his economy, in his kingdom. Frees us to be a blessing to others. So where is your treasure? Where is your heart? Do you live in the scarcity story, the get-all-you-can-well-you-can story that we are told day after day after day? Or do you live in this abundance story? Give all that I can because God is taking care of me. What do you have? What has God blessed you with? Don't hold on to it. Don't hold it back. Let God use it and let him add to the abundance of his world. Let's pray. Father, for a lot of us, it's not just the messages that we receive from our culture, but it may even just be reality as we look at our bottom line, look at the food in our pantry, look at the stuff that we have and feel like there's a lack. So God, wherever we are at this morning, I would just ask that we would learn more and more to trust you, trust your provision for us, and that whatever we might have materially, there's this deeper truth we can have everything in the world and have a rotten heart. So God, may you work on each and every one of us in our hearts to put you in your proper place at the center of everything, to trust you, to take care of us. And as we grow in this trust, God, may we be individuals and then a church community that gives lavishly because of the ways you have lavished us pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.